0: Welcome to the Shift Gold, Friday Gold Wrap, your overview of news impacting the precious metals markets. It's Friday, July 7th. I'm your host, Mike Perry. Thanks for tuning in. Do you ever get the feeling that the Fed people are just throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks? I mean, it almost seems like they don't really know what they're doing. Or maybe it's a function of them knowing exactly what they're doing, but they're singing a different tune. In other words, their rhetoric is not matching up with the reality of their actions. Because all of this hawkish rhetoric about inflation still being hot and it's so important to keep it up and we're going to keep raising interest rates and this is just you know a desperate fight, it doesn't match up with what they're doing. Now, of course, the markets are dancing to the Fed's tune. We had more hawkishness from Fed officials this week, and that put more downward pressure on gold. Although, through early Friday morning, the yellow metal had held the $1,900 support level so far. We'll see what happens as we move through Friday with uh, the. Bureau of Labor Statistics releasing the employment data for June. But uh, the stock market really felt the pressure this week. The NASDAQ saw a big 112-point decline yesterday. The S&P 500 fell just over 35 points. And the mainstream financial reporting summed it up like this. The focus is on Fed rate hikes. And one of the things that's kind of increased that focus yesterday was we got the ADP private sector employment news. There were more jobs added than expected. Uh, So we're getting this continuing narrative that the job market is so strong. We've talked about uh, the fact that it's not really as strong as they would have you believe. But that's what's driving the markets right now. Now, here's what kind of sticks in my crawl about all of this. Jerome Powell and the rest of the Fed people have been talking up this inflation fight for weeks. Yesterday, Dallas Fed President Lori Logan said the the continued above-target inflation outlook and a stronger-than-expected labor market calls for more restrictive monetary policy. So, it's all hawk talk, right? But I've asked this question before, and I can't figure out an answer for it. Why didn't they raise rates at the June meeting if inflation is such a concern? I mean, nothing was different in terms of the economic picture in June, right? They were still talking about strong employment. The economy's robust. They were saying all that in June. We were hearing the same rhetoric in June about inflation still being hot. You know, Powell came out after the June meeting talking about how Uh, interest rates are going to have to stay higher longer. So that hadn't changed. But they stood pat and they didn't actually raise rates. And why aren't they shrinking the balance sheet faster? Did you know they have not hit the monthly target for shedding mortgage-backed securities one time since announcing their balance sheet reduction plan back in May 2022? Not one time. And as I've talked about Before, the plan wasn't exactly ambitious to begin with. I mean, we're talking about a plan that would take seven years just to get the additional liquidity out of the system that they ejected during the pandemic. So, again, if inflation is the big fear, if all of this hawkish talk is really justified, why this slow walk? It's almost like they want to talk about an inflation fight, but they don't really want to be in an inflation fight. It's like Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg talking about getting in the octagon. I mean, it's cool to talk about, right? But I don't think either one of those dudes really wants to start throwing punches. So, that's kind of the feeling I'm getting with the Fed. So, earlier this week, we got the Fed meeting minutes from the June FOMC meeting. You know, I don't really know why people get all geeked up about the minutes because, I mean, they don't really ever tell us anything we can't discern from the meeting and the post-meeting press conference. You know, it's not like there's ever any huge surprises in the minutes. The minutes just reflect what we already know that the Fed did. Um, But you know, it's part of the news cycle, I guess. And the reporting on the minutes from June was all about how pretty much all of the FOMC members agreed that inflation is still persistently high. And they all also pretty much agreed to pause rate hikes. Now, think about that a second. All of them agreed inflation is still persistently high. This problem still exists. And yet, they all agreed to stop doing the thing that they've been doing to fix the problem. Again, it really seems like they don't know what they're doing. Or, I think more accurately, they're afraid to do what they really know they need to do. Now, I get it. It may seem a little presumptuous for me to question the knowledge of these highly trained economists over at the Fed. I mean, they have that job, and I'm over here talking to you mutts. But think about how wrong these people have been. I mean, just go back to the transitory inflation thing, right? If their jobs depended on them being right, the whole lot of them would get fired. So the other day I was uh, perusing Twitter and I ran across a dot plot graph from March 17th, 2021. And these are the graphs that the Fed puts out every so often, projecting where the FOMC members think the federal funds rate is going to go in the future. Uh, They just released one not too long ago. You'll remember everybody freaked out because uh, it showed that the FOMC members are now projecting interest rates to go higher and stay higher longer than they had been uh, when they released the last dot plot graph. So this one this economist posted was from uh, again March 2021. I'll put the graph in the show notes page um, so you can actually go look at it but I'm going to try to describe what it shows you. So again as of March 2021 most of the FOMC members thought interest rates would still be at zero in 2022. There were a couple of members who said a quarter percent and one said half a percent. The actual rate at the end of 2022 was 1.75%. So, all of them were wildly wrong, right? Then, we go to 2023. In March 2021, the vast majority of FOMC members thought interest rates would still be at zero in 2023. Two projected it would rise to 1%, and there were five who said it would be between a quarter percent and three quarters percent. The actual rate, over 5%. So, the guy that posted this, he actually drew little red dots where the actual interest rate ended up being. And for 2023, That dot wouldn't even fit on the graph. Like He had to estimate way up off the graph to show where the actual interest rates were. Again, all of the FOMC members were wildly wrong two years ago about where interest rates would be today. The dot plots also have a category uh, called longer term. So where are interest rates going to be longer term? The highest anybody on the FOMC saw rates climbing long term was 3%. The vast majority were locked in around 2.5%. Again, we're over 5 now. So when you hear about these dot plots and you hear these Fed people talking about what they're going to do, take it with a grain of salt. Or maybe even assume it's just going to be the exact opposite. Because quite frankly, the reality today is the exact opposite of what the committee members projected back in March 2021. Just like price inflation was the exact opposite of transitory. So that's why I don't care what Powell says about rates staying higher for longer. That could change next week. In fact, I think they are going to be cutting rates within the next, uh, say, 12 to 18 months to deal with a crashing economy. Now, of course, the Fed people say the economy is strong. So there you go. Maybe you think the opposite. Now... I can't tell you whether or not they know what they're doing and the stuff they tell us is just BS, or if they really are clueless and just pitching stuff at the wall hoping something sticks. But I don't guess it really matters, right? Because the net result is the same. But to some degree, I think they have to know that they're in trouble. I think they know this debt-ridden economy can't handle these relatively high interest rates. I think they're talking tough, hoping against hope, crossing their fingers that they can get price inflation at least plausibly under control so that when the economic poo hits the fan, they can go ahead and cut rates back to zero. So these are open mouth operations. They're trying to jawbone the economy where they want it to go instead of actually doing the things that they would really need to do to slay price inflation. So, in other words, they're hoping that they can mask price inflation long enough to go back to creating inflation. Because they have to know this train is coming down the tracks, right? I mean, their own economists are warning them. I mentioned last week a Fed note that was published last month warning about a big problem. And I actually wrote an article about that. I think it published on Monday over at shiftgold.com news. I'll put that in the show notes page as well. But the long and short of it is that according to these Fed economists analysis, more than one third, 37% of non-financial U.S. companies are in financial distress. Think about that. A third of non-banking companies are in financial distress. These two economists wrote, quote, the share of non-financial firms in financial distress has reached a level that is higher than during most previous tightening episodes since the 1970s. Now, distress, that means close to default. The report goes on and it says, Our results suggest that in the current environment characterized by a high share of firms in distress, a restrictive monetary policy stance may contribute to a market slowdown in investment and employment in the near term. Mark slowdown means deep recession. You're welcome for me helping you translate Fed speak. So to put this situation into perspective, consider the fact that there are more significantly distressed firms today than there were when the Fed tightened monetary policy prior to the financial crisis and Great Recession. In other words, they've done it again. They've set the stage for another economic disaster like the financial crisis and the Great Recession. Loose monetary policy after the dot-com bubble set up the financial crisis and the Great Recession, right? After that, we had more than a decade of easy money to fix the economy a very brief tightening cycle in 2018 that crashed the stock market and drove the Fed to abandon tightening even before the pandemic, and then easy money on steroids to deal with the government's insane response to the Rona. So today we have more debt, we have more money sloshing around in the economy, we have interest rates at the level that popped the bubble in 2008, and I'm supposed to believe everything is fine? Yeah, no. Since we're talking about federal reserve malfeasance, how about a little federal government malfeasance to go with that? As you'll recall, a month ago, the fake debt ceiling fight ended and Congress suspended the federal government's borrowing limit for two years. So basically, now the government has a shiny new credit card with no limit. What could go wrong, right? Well, since the debt ceiling deal, the U.S. Treasury has added a staggering $851 billion to the national debt. You heard me right. They've added very close to another trillion dollars to the national debt in one month. I mean, that's impressive. Impressively bad. Now, you may recall that I warned we would see a big jump in the national debt with the passage of any debt ceiling deal. I said that before the deal even worked its way through Congress. After nearly six months up against its borrowing limit, the federal government had a lot of ground to make up. It needed to replenish its cash reserves and unwind the extraordinary measures that it took to keep the government running while it couldn't borrow any money. But the pace of borrowing that we've seen since the debt ceiling deal, it even surprises me. Wolf Street called it an amazing freak show. That pretty much sums it up. Uh, I've mentioned this before. Goldman Sachs analysts had projected that the U.S. Treasury would have to sell up to $700 billion in Treasury bills within six to eight weeks of the debt ceiling deal just to replenish cash reserves that were spent down while the government was up against the borrowing limit. The Treasury blew through $700 billion in just four weeks. So, let me kind of give you a, a real quick overview of how the government finances its debt. A little little treasury bond lesson here. There are actually two types of treasury department securities. There are what are called non-marketable securities. And these include inflation-protected I-bonds that the general public can just buy directly from the treasury, uh, along with securities that entities such as the government uh, government pension funds, uh, the Social Security Trust Fund, they can hold uh, these non-marketable securities. Uh, they do not trade on the open market. Then we have marketable. Treasuries. And these are sold through auctions and then trade on the public bond market. So marketable securities are what you hear about uh, when they talk about, you know, the 10 year and the five year and the two years. Uh, Those are all marketable, again, sold by the Treasury into the market and then also traded uh, in the market. So these include bonds and notes. So last month, non marketable debt rose by. $123 billion. That's quite a bit. But non-marketable securities make up only a small amount of the total national debt, about $6.8 trillion of that outstanding debt. Marketable debt actually increased by $728 billion since June 3rd, and uh, that makes up $25.43 trillion of the outstanding national debt. So the vast majority of the national debt is marketable debt that's being auctioned off and is being sold out there in the open market. Now, all of this borrowing, all of these treasuries that are being sold have implications for the broader bond market and and even the broader financial system itself. Um, think about this. Even with this big borrowing spree, the Treasury Department has only partially refilled the Treasury General account. That's basically the Fed's uh, government checking account. It's over at the New York Fed, uh, TGA for short. And the TGA cash balance uh It has increased from $23 billion as of June 1st to $465 billion as of June 30th. Now, this fell short of the Treasury's $550 billion goal and remains well below the nearly $600 uh, billion balance that is, quote, consistent with the Treasury's cash balance policy. So, all of that to say uh, that after adding $800-plus billion to the national debt, they're still not where they need to be. And that means there's even more borrowing coming at you, a lot more. In order to cover current spending and finish replenishing the TGA, the Treasury estimates it's going to have to sell another $733 billion in marketable securities during the third quarter. So another $733 billion estimated in the next quarter added to the national debt. And if history teaches us anything, it's going to be more than that. And by the way, who's going to buy all of these bonds? That's kind of what I'm getting at when I say there's ramifications in the broader market. With the Fed still engaged in the inflation fight, the Treasury can't depend on the central bank – to put its thumb on the bond market and create artificial demand through quantitative easing, that means that the Treasury is going to have to sell bonds cheap enough with high enough yields to stimulate enough demand to absorb all of this supply. And if you look at the trends out there in the bond market, it's not good. We've seen uh, a lot of foreign holders of U.S. Treasuries actually decreasing their holdings. uh, So they're not buying. The Fed's not buying. Somebody's got to buy these. So it's a matter of supply and demand, right? They have to get the bonds cheap enough to entice enough people to buy them. And Bond yields, or interest rates, are inverse of the price of bonds, so when the price falls, interest rates on those bonds rise. So what I'm talking about here, what I'm basically saying, is that there's going to be a lot of upward pressure on interest rates because of all of the borrowing that the federal government is doing. Or else the Fed can go back to quantitative easing, which I think is ultimately in the cards, because the Treasury quite frankly, can't afford 6 or 7% interest rates on a $33 or $34 trillion debt. Now, of course, all of these treasuries flooding into the market is going to create upward pressure on other interest rates because treasuries are part of the broader bond market. So if people are buying more treasuries, if the price of treasuries is dropping, that means there's going to be less demand for other types of debt. People are going to buy fewer corporate bonds. Uh, It's going to put pressure on mortgage rates, right? auto loans. All things that are functions of interest rates are going to feel that upward pressure because the federal government is borrowing so much money and dumping all of this debt into the economy. So, higher interest rates in a debt-riddled economy. What could possibly go wrong? perhaps that's why a lot of central banks are buying gold. I mean, I'm not sure I would want to be holding a bunch of U.S. government debt given the fact that the Treasury is still obviously running a Ponzi scheme. I think the world knows that. We've talked about the kind of trend toward de-dollarization. I think there's a lot of people out there that look at what the federal government is doing. They look at the trajectory. They know it's unsustainable. I think a lot of people are nervous about that. So, quite a few central banks have been on a gold-buying spree over the last several years. Speaking of which, we got the latest central bank gold-buying data from the World Gold Council uh, this week. It covers the month of May. Eight central banks added gold to their reserves in May. Uh, Net purchases totaled 50 tons. Now, there is a bit of a caveat here. Turkey had another big sale of 63 tons of gold in May. That follows on the heels of a big sale of gold by the Turkish central bank uh, in April. So with that, global net central bank gold holdings fell by 27 tons. Turkey has sold about 160 tons of gold since March. Now, according to the World Gold Council, this is a response to local market dynamics and doesn't likely reflect a change in the Turkish central bank's long-term gold strategy. Basically, what happened is there was a big earthquake in Turkey back in February. Uh, the government took a number of steps trying to shore up the economy, and one of those steps was to suspend some gold imports. So, there's not as much gold going into the country, and yet there's a huge demand for gold in Turkey. So, the central bank has been selling gold into that domestic market to kind of help uh, with that local demand. So, this isn't something that's expected to continue. Uh, there's no indication that this is the beginning of some kind of um, you know big selling spree by global central banks. So who bought gold in May? The biggest buyer was Poland. Uh, The Polish central bank added 19 tons of gold to its reserves, um, and that follows on the heels of a 15-ton increase back in April when the National Bank of Poland resumed buying gold. May's purchase was the largest increase in the country's reserves since June 2019, uh, and at that point the bank actually boosted its gold holdings by almost 100 tons. Meanwhile, the People's Bank of China extended its gold-buying spree for a seventh straight month with a 16-ton addition to its official reserves. Since recommencing reports of purchases back in November of 2022, the People's Bank of China has added 144 tons to its official gold holdings, and officially, Chinese. Uh, gold holdings stand at 2,092 tons. Notice I keep emphasizing official there. Uh, China probably has a lot more gold than they actually report. Uh, There's a lot of speculation that China holds a significant amount of gold off the books. Uh, So, this is what they're officially saying. There's probably more gold in China than is officially acknowledged. The central banks of Singapore with four tons, Russia with three tons, India two tons, the Czech Republic two tons, and Iraq two tons. Oh, also the Kyrgyz or Kyrgyz Republic, Kyrgyzstan. Uh, they also bought two tons. These were the other notable buyers of gold in May. So. Quite a few central banks there buying gold. Um, Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan were both sellers, um, along with Turkey. Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan kind of shift back and forth from buying and selling, which is typical of countries who um, get a lot of their gold reserves from their own mining. There was an interesting statement from the Iraqi central bank with its two-ton buy. Uh, It said, the purchase came with the aim of increasing holdings of gold in light of the economic and political conditions that the world is witnessing. Makes sense to me. I mean, with the Fed apparently lost in space somewhere, the U.S. government borrowing at an unsustainable clip, uh, dollar weakness, inflation, the Iraqi central bankers might be onto something. In fact, given the economic and political conditions that the world is witnessing, might be a good time for you to consider adding gold and or silver to your portfolio, or maybe expanding your holdings. So, if you're thinking about that, give a shift Gold Precious Metals Specialist a call today. Call 1-888-GOLD-160, or if you don't want to talk on the phone, you can email info at shiftgold.com, or You can go to shiftgold.com, go to the Getting Started tab, and you can actually talk to a precious metal specialist right there online. And they're fantastic. They'll look at your situation, your investment goals, help you figure out how precious metals can fit into your investment strategy. If you're still not convinced, let me encourage you to download our free report, I'll link to it on the show notes page. Why Buy Gold Now? Uh, We just updated and revised the report, and it really explains this whole Fed business cycle, what they've done to the economy, and why gold and silver can help protect your wealth in what is likely coming down the path. So do that, and then you can call a shift Gold Precious Metal specialist. But do it today. Don't wait, because I think this is a good buying opportunity. Where we are right now uh, with the markets, with the price of gold hovering around 1900 uh, I think this is a good buy opportunity. So, strike while the iron is hot, so they say. And, um, you know, actually... Let's do something here. We are just a couple of minutes from getting the uh, employment report for this month. So I'm going to hold off for a second. I'm going to push pause. Uh, go get yourself a cup of coffee and we'll come back and uh, I'll break the uh, the jobs numbers to you. All right. Here we are. The numbers are in June non-farm payroll Added 209,000 jobs. That was a little bit below expectations. Uh, The projection was for 230,000 new jobs. Uh, Last month, there was 339,000 new jobs. So uh, I guess you could look at that and consider it weakness. Now, I've talked about this before. I consider all of these job numbers to be kind of wonky and maybe bogus. Um, And a lot of these jobs, again, are people getting second jobs, third jobs, part-time jobs, trying to deal with um, the ever-rising cost of everything. Uh, The unemployment rate is at 3.6%. That is uh, what was expected and um, is actually down a tick from the 3.7% last month. Average hourly earnings, 0.4% increase. Um, 0.3% was expected. So, they're going to look at that and say, oh, no inflation because wages are going up. And uh, average weekly hours for all workers was 34.4. Um, that was a little higher than the 34.3 expected, and it was 34.3. So, people people work the tick up um, from the last month. So, I don't know. I mean, it's kind of where people expected. I think you could look at the 209,000 if you're one to really try to overanalyze these numbers and say, ooh, employment slowing down. Um, I don't know that this is going to move the markets that much. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But there you are. The non-farm payroll numbers. Again, I take all of these uh, BLS numbers. You can take the L out, and I think a lot of them are BS numbers. Um, But, you know, take them for what they will, and uh, maybe next week we'll dig a little bit more and kind of get into the internals, because that's really where uh, the, uh, the real... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for now, see this is what happens we have no notes <laughs> um, digging into the internals is where you can really kind of get a better feel for for what's going on and maybe read between the lines on these things but since we were close I wanted to go ahead and, and break it to you guys um, and with that we'll say this is the gold wrap for this week of course, as always, you can get more details on all of the things that I've talked about today and more, and keep up with the latest precious metals news and analysis throughout the week over at shipgold.com news. If you haven't done it already, you can subscribe to the Friday Gold Wrap over on the iTunes podcast, on the Google podcast, on Stitcher, the Ship Gold YouTube channel. You'll find links to all of these things over on the show notes page. You can email me, mmaherrey, M-M-A-H-A-R-R-E-Y, chipgold.com. Love to hear from folks. And that's it. I hope you guys have a fantastic weekend, and I'll talk to you all next week.